From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Thursday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Dominican Father Brian Mullady is in the house. If you'd like to ask a question of Father Mullady, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is one 205 Two seven one two nine eight five, and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Charles Beery handling our social media efforts today. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, the aforementioned Father Brian Mullady, how are you? Just fine, thank you. And you're going to shed some light on the divine light today. Uh, Well, I hope so. (laughs) I wanted to talk about this theme because, as you know, the gospel of the man born blind is coming up this weekend. And it's one of Christ's most important miracles. But it's a miracle which represents what Lent is all about, too, as we're preparing for the divine light of Easter. The philosophers of ancient Greece wanted a certain light in which they could see and understand the causes of nature in the world. In fact, Aristotle begins his metaphysics with the statement, all men by nature desire to know. So this desire to know, this and it's not necessarily a uh, desire of the will, an appetite. Instead, it refers to the potential of the mind. As soon as the mind knows one relationship of cause and effect, there's a dynamism in our intelligence which seeks to know what the final solution is, the final explanation is. Now, human beings start out, uh, everyone really is a natural theist. In other words, you have to be convinced to be an atheist. There are no born atheists. So everyone had some idea of a higher power. The trouble was that their ideas of the higher power were often frightening. They were, the pagan gods, as you know, were quite merciless, many of them. They were frightfully looking and in their representations. So they began in Greece to question this, and they did so using what's called the light of reason. Probably the first person to seriously question this was Socrates. If you remember, Socrates 
was condemned to death for corrupting the youth by atheism. Now, what did that mean? It meant that he criticized the Greek gods and said, look at these people. They're jealous, they're hateful, they're merciless, they devour the people whole, they do all kinds of things. This can't be what God is about. So he, as you know, developed the idea, which Plato made more clear, of the good. In other words, the light of reason led them to one explanation, one cause, but it was only to the existence of that cause. He, the desire to know constantly stimulated the human race, but once the existence of God was known by the light of reason, which Aristotle maintains it was at the end of his physics as the explanation from nature, then the mind wanted to go further and know not just that this thing existed, but what it was like, and it couldn't. And so pagan man was like the fox before the grapes, saw that the grapes were delicious, but couldn't reach them. There was no power. And this is like the man born blind. There's no power in him for sight. It is like Christ, in a normal way, took something in nature and corrected it so that then he could see. Instead, he was born blind. There was nothing in him that uh, was directed toward that. So fortunately, however, really intelligent people, which unfortunately is not many of the people we have running the place today, realize they don't know the answer to all these things, but there must be some way. So they prepare themselves to try to discover what that way is if it's ever revealed to them. Revelation is a light. So in response to the light of reason, approving it and going beyond it is the light of faith. Everyone has to have the light of faith, except, of course, for our Lord, who always already has vision. This light of faith is what helps us to see the world in a new perspective that will be ultimately completed in heaven. And seeing the world in this new perspective is what Lent is all about. In other words, we see the world not now from man's point of view or a materialist perspective or even God from a materialist perspective, but instead we see the world as God sees the world from God's perspective. In other words, we see time from the standpoint of eternity, not eternity from the standpoint of time. Well, this is also obviously like a light year revolution in the light which illuminates each one of us when we're baptized. But again, the mind has a dynamism to know what this thing is, who God is. And this can only be finally achieved when God himself is directly experienced in our intelligence by a light that is uncreated. Now, we experience it as created because we're created. But a light which is uncreated, which is infinite and eternal, which captures our mind. 
which is what happens in the resurrection of the dead. So you could say there are three levels on which the man born blind has to be illuminated. The first is the light of reason. The second is the light of faith. Then the third is after we die. And the only person who didn't have to wait till after he died was our Lord in his human nature, which is the light itself of divine eternal glory, which is what the resurrection of the dead brings us. As we are preparing, therefore, during Lent to celebrate the resurrection, let us remember that these lights, all of them, all three of them, we have to do justice to, and that all three of these lights are absolutely necessary for us to experience the fullness of divine light. A person who experiences the fullness of divine light, in other words, the beatific vision, understands what was begun in a tiny child and the first perception of the difference between a cause and an effect in nature. And it's, this is very well expressed in a wonderful quotation of St. Augustine's Confessions, which St. Thomas uses in his Summa. And it talks about the fact that our mind wants to know the nature of everything, and that in the uh, beatific vision, that happens. So the quotation is, Unhappy is the one who does not know you, even if he knows everything else. Happy is the one who knows you, even if he knows nothing else. And the man who knows you and all the other things isn't any happier for knowing all the other things than he is for knowing you alone. During Lent, therefore, we pray that our blindness will be illuminated. First, of course, by faith, most deeply. But then, when we rise from the dead, by the light of glory. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, you can listen in for the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass celebrated every other hour during the day, plus rosaries, chaplets, stations of the cross, and other devotionals every hour, uh, an especially poignant resource for the Lenten season. You can hear EWTN Radio Essentials on the EWTN app and at EWTN.com. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. We've still got a couple of open phone lines for you at 833-288-3986. First up today is Maureen in Grand Rapids, Michigan, listening on our great affiliate there, Holy Family Radio. Maureen, thanks so much for holding. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Um, I have a question for Father. Um, My husband um, struggles with believing that Jesus is in the true presence of the body and blood of Christ in Mass, and also um, that um, he doesn't believe Jesus is the Savior. He believes that he's a, a prophet, and he was raised Catholic, and I'm just struggling with this new information Mm. and wondering how do I best proceed or what to do. Well, uh, does he go to Mass on Sunday? Yeah. Oh, okay. As long as I get dressed up and go, he'll go, but if I don't, he won't. Yes, yes. Well, first of all, I know my faith about this quite well especially what transubstantiation means and why we uh, espouse what we do about it, I'd also like to know what the level of his objections are if he was raised Catholic and why he continues to go if he doesn't believe in what's happening. What could be the source of this? Well, you have to find out. And um, regarding Christ and his being a redeemer, I mean, that's the whole reason he came from heaven to earth. However, there are lots and lots of people today who have a secularist view of Christianity that don't like the idea of redeemer or atonement. And so they want to make Jesus just another good moral teacher, uh, like they, what they think are the head of these other religions. And in other words, he's just one among many. That's not the way Christ presents himself. And it's, uh, I and the Father are one, and that sort of thing. And he who has seen me has seen the Father. And it's also not the way it's presented regarding his sacrifice on the cross, which, though he finds it repugnant, after all, he sweats blood over the possibilities because he knows that it's the fruit of human sin. Uh, He comes to as the reason he was born. As Bishop Sheehan used to say in the 50s, every other man was born to live, Jesus was born to die. So your husband seems to be missing quite a bit of the gospel message, although I have a feeling that it was some priest or someone along the line who convinced him of this. I don't know if that's true or not. But I know there are enough strange ideas around us that even in Catholic schools they teach them things some places that are simply a shocking when you think about it. So what I would do is I'd show a good practice myself and then I try to figure out what his problem is if he mentions that he just doesn't believe in that. Well why don't you? Where did you get this idea? And um, I think that may help to have it, you need to have a window where you can enter in and get him to question 
since he questions what the church teaches, to question what he thinks and how he came to think about that. You know, Maureen, I think Father gave you some tremendous advice at the beginning of his response when he said to to educate yourself and make sure that you are up to date. And I think one really good way to do that is to, there's an encyclical that was written by St. John Paul II called Ecclesia de Eucharistia, and it's readily available on the internet, and it's not terribly uh, long and detailed, but it's beautifully written, and I think that it'll give you some new insights, and it'll also help you to prepare yourself to have those conversations when the, when the opportunity presents itself. Does that sound all right, Father? Oh, yeah, and the catechism, of course, is very clear yeah, very good. this, too. All right, Maureen, does that help? Yes, sir. Thank you so much. You're very surely, welcome. Thanks so much surely. for the phone call. That frees up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Next up is Mark in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Mark, you're on with Father Milady. Hi, thank you. Father, I have a question. Um, quick background. Leaving Mass late yesterday afternoon, ran in, or I was summoned uh, by a former high school classmate from the 80s. He is a, I'll say within the last 10 years, recent um, ordained priest, uh, I think I'm saying it right, seat of vacantist. He's with the CMRI, the Congregation of Mary Immaculate Queen. So, Vacante, uh... Thank you. I, I didn't, I've never encountered the word. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, the, the vacancy, the, the, chair, the chair of Peter. Um, and vacant. so... You know what? What if there was the FBI attacking Latin Mass? Father uh, Pope Francis' recent stance on the Latin Mass. I've never been to a Latin Mass. Um, you know what if they're right? What if we're living the heresy? This is brand new news to me. And oh shocking. well, I mean, you have to look at the what's involved with the whole thing a little bit more. I mean, the Sede Vacantes are off the wall. I mean, they don't recognize anybody. Most of them, some of them don't even recognize Pius Twelfth, But some people will recognize Pius Twelfth and just say we've been living with a vacant sea. You can't live with a vacant sea in the chair of Peter. No matter how scurry the Pope might be, he's there, right? Also, um, uh, it's not, nothing to do with the Latin Mass uh, as such. It has to do with a certain view and vision of our church, which perhaps the Latin Mass had something to do with it when it was uh, changed. But again, the terminology betrays a certain ignorance because uh, you can celebrate the present Mass in Latin too. What they mean is the traditional rite, and that is what Benedict had referred to as the extraordinary form. Uh, yes, it's true. The present Pope doesn't like that extraordinary form being used too often. And perhaps he's been overzealous in trying to suppress it again. You know, the trouble is that all of us who lived through the 60s, we already went through this once, and now we're going through it again. In fact, uh, the young priests in my community... They just loved the traditional mass, and they were having a discussion about it one day, and I just told them, I said, you know, guys, I've been discussing this stuff for 60 years. 
And frankly, I've just liturgied out. <laughs> I, I just, just to say mass, who cares, you know. Um, but they care greatly, and I, and I respect that. It's an important issue. But this Sedevacantus business is just screwy. Who determined that the sea was vacant anyway? Some people that got together, a couple of uh, strange bishop. And I don't care what they look like, if they wear cassocks and berettas and all this junk, you know. Um, they're, they're not right. God bless you, Mark. Thanks so much. We appreciate the phone call today. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Mike writes in, he says, If Satan is the father of lies and evil, then is a white lie an evil act? Is the lie itself evil, and was Cain inherently evil? I don't quite get the relation of Cain to the rest of the question. Well, he lied about having killed his but, brother, but knowing what happened to his brother. Oh, I see. Yeah. Well, look, you have to remember that there are different levels of lying, depending on what's involved in the lie. So, in a full-blown lie, which is a mortal sin. Yes, I would say the devil's the source of that, in a sense, because he tempted Adam and Eve to sin. Now, he doesn't have to tell us or tempt each one of us personally to um, tell a great lie. We're perfectly capable of figuring that out on our own. But in some cases, it's true that the devil is the origin of our lie. If what you mean by a white lie is lying about you know, whether your mother's home or not to someone, uh, that's what's called, if it is a sin, it's a venial sin. So it doesn't really fully participate in the whole denial of reason. Also, as you know, you only have a moral obligation to tell the truth to someone who has a right to know the truth. Uh, I remember I had a long debate with someone about during World War II. The um, chancery offices in Germany that registered people as Jew, that were Jews as baptized when they knew they weren't in order to save their lives. And some very vigorous Catholics said, well, they should have just suffered death, you know, rather than a lie. And I said, yeah, but the, the Nazis don't have a right to know who's in the church and who isn't. That's not a matter of the civil order's business. So I wouldn't do, you know, we undercut our credibility if we're telling something about that that isn't so. But if someone doesn't have a right to know the truth, you don't have to reveal it to them. So the lie which would participate most fully in Satan as the father of lies would be the mortal sin, and especially about some grave matter. And uh, straight ahead, we will talk with Sarah in Duluth, Minnesota. We'll talk to Gerilyn in southern Wisconsin. And we've got plenty of time for your phone calls as well. Pick up the phone and give us a call. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 
288-288-3986. It's a free telephone call anywhere in North America. If you're outside of the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is one 205 271 2985 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985 and you can always send us an email that email address is openline at ewtn.com that's openline all one word at ewtn.com I'm Jack Williams. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. All right, we're going to give our Director of Programming and Production, Mr. Tom Price, a little civics lesson here on the air on Open Line Thursday. Got one of our great radio partners, Guadalupe Radio. They have 40-plus stations, and Tom writes in the copy in six states. And he says that uh, uh, they're going to, the, the the bottom line of the whole thing is that they're having their share next week, and we want you to support Guadalupe Radio next week. And he says if you're living, if you're listening to one of their stations in Texas, Kansas, Alabama, Florida, New Mexico, or Washington, D.C., Please support your local Catholic radio station, and we encourage you to do so. But I would point out that that's five states and the District of Columbia for Mr. Price. I know it's been a long while since he's had his junior high civics class, but uh, at any rate, Guadalupe Radio, longtime partner, 40-plus stations. Started out as a, as a little bookshop set up inside of a parish and has grown to 40 radio stations across the United States. So uh, great job out of them. Support Guadalupe Radio next week when they ask for your help and all of your local Catholic radio stations. Like WSFI in northern Chicago. That's where Sarah is listening today. She's calling from Duluth, Minnesota. And Sarah, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Hi. Hi. Um, so my question is actually my 10-year-old who has this question that I didn't really know how to answer properly, and it's sort of a loaded question regarding saints and um, when the Catholic Church uh, canonizes saints and how come Moses and Abraham didn't end up on that list. And I tried to explain that, well, from my understanding, they're from the Old Testament and we just don't recognize them necessarily as saints. However, he came back with, well, what about St. Michael the Archangel? Wasn't he from the Old Testament? And I did not know where to go from here. Uh, Well, actually, uh, we do recognize Old Testament figures as saints. But in the Latin Church, we haven't emphasized it too much. The Eastern Church emphasizes it a lot. As you know, they have St. Elijah, who's supposed to be the founder of the Carmelites, then they do have St. Moses, I believe, and St. David. That's right. And uh, even the British had St. David. They call a lot of their churches after St. David, in Wales especially. And uh, it's just that we haven't emphasized his feast days and things like that, the saints of the Old Testament. But according to Hebrews 11.5, there are lots of saints of the Old Testament, and they enumerate various ones, and then they enumerate various other things that people in the Old Testament suffered. 
And then they say, and then the Epistle of Hebrews very beautifully says, what they looked forward to, which is the reason why they became holy, they look forward in faith to, has been completed in us and wouldn't be completed without us. In other words, the Christians. So, uh, yeah, no, we have a lot of saints in the Old Testament. It's just that we don't, in the Latin church, celebrate them much. They do again in the East. Does that help, Sarah? Yes, actually that does. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. We appreciate the phone call today. Dominic's watching us on YouTube, Father, and he wants to know, why was St. Joseph not taken up to heaven like the Blessed Virgin? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, you, weren't, you weren't there? <laughs> well, I mean, why things didn't happen, it's hard to figure out. Uh, we know that the general tradition of the church is that the only people who have their bodies in heaven now are Christ and Our Lady by a special privilege because obviously his body came from hers. So that's, I would think, is the reason. St. Joseph, of course, is very highly venerated, um, but he... Christ did not come from his seed. He was, came from the seed of the Holy Spirit. And so it would not be fitting for him to be assumed into heaven. And generally, no one has ever celebrated, to my knowledge, now I could be corrected about this, a feast in honor of the Assumption of St. Joseph, even in the Western or Eastern Church. So it would be contrary to tradition. Uh, Carol is in the great state of Michigan. Uh, excuse me, Steve. I'm well. No, Carol is in the great state of Michigan. If I can make my fingers work properly, I will even tell you that she's listening on Sirius XM channel 130. Carol, thanks for hanging in there. You're on with Father Milady. Hi. I have a question with regards to anointing of the sick and the last rites, and what are the differences between the two? And also, I've heard that if you have the last rites upon passing that you go directly to heaven. And is that true? All right. Well, there is no difference in the rite, really, um, or the, the purpose of the sacrament between the anointing of the sick and the last rites. Uh, they reflect the text in James about if someone is sick among you, let the elders of the church come in and pray over him and anoint him. But in Vatican, after Vatican II, the anointing of the sick took on a, great, a greater emphasis regarding also healing, but it wouldn't just be physical healing. It would be the spiritual healing of the spirit. Also, given the proper dispositions, in other words, that a person didn't go through it just for the sake of an external magical thing, but they truly repented and they truly uh, believed in what was happening in the anointing of the sick. Yes, they would, they would go straight to heaven. And, of course, the apostolic pardon, which we're encouraged to use, uh, and which is a privilege from the Pope, pardons every possible transgression here on earth. So anointing is a very important thing, and so is the apostolic pardon with regard to preparing us for the journey. But it can also help us to deal with our sicknesses and not just physical sicknesses but all the depression and difficulty that goes on with constant pain and things like that of our physical sicknesses. 
833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. We have some open phone lines and time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Steve is in California watching us today on YouTube. Steve, you're on with Father Milady. Yes, uh, thank you, gentlemen. I've uh, been studying and watching you guys a long time. I really appreciate your work, everything you're doing. As a non-Catholic, I, I'm studying. I, I looked. I watched you guys in Catholic Answers, and to make a long story short, they were talking about the hierarchy of truths. I searched on Catholic Answers and couldn't find anything about it. Um, do you? Could you explain what the hierarchy of truths is in the Catholic Church and what it, how it, how I should interpret it? Or I'm trying to remember, uh, but I believe that it's. It was, something mentioned by John Paul II and Pope Benedict, and it has to do with the idea that certain truths are foundational to other truths. So, of course, the primary truth would be the Trinity and the Incarnation. Then from those truths, you go to the sacraments and the Church and that sort of thing. And uh, it's not so much that one can be done away with in favor of the other, but the idea that some are more foundational into the others. That's all it really means. Does that help, Steve? That's great. Thank you, guys. You're very welcome. We appreciate the phone call today. God bless you. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Robert writes in, In the book of Ezekiel, it says that one man shall not bear the sins of another. And he wants to know how that correlates with original sin. Okay, original sin is not a deed. It's a state. It may be caused, uh, what they call it in classics, called efficient cause, by um, some deed on the part of Adam and Eve. But we're not inheriting the punishment due to whatever that particular deed must be. Original sin, and you can find this very well explained in the Catechism, basically means that we all enter the world without grace. And that was because of Adam's sin. Had Adam not sinned, we'd all enter the world with grace. And that's not the same as a personal sin, murder, uh, theft, that sort of thing. So we experience the loss of grace and the accompanying loss of the special gifts given to Adam and Eve, which all depended on their obedience. But we don't experience any personal punishments for the personal sins of someone else. We're only personally punished for our own sins. So if my father committed murder, I'm not punished for that, according to Ezekiel. That's his problem. It doesn't pass on blood feuds and all that. They're all done away with. And a bit of a follow-up, Mackenzie uh, sent us an email as well, and she said, is it possible to commit mortal sin accidentally or be out of the state of grace without knowing it? Uh, They're not the same question. You can commit a mortal sin accidentally, but remember one of the requirements for a mortal sin is consent. In other words, you can materially commit what would be considered a mortal sin, like uh, fornication or missing mass on Sunday or that sort of thing. But if you didn't intend it, 
you don't become guilty of a mortal sin within. And regarding the second question, what was the second question again? Uh, if you can be out of a state of grace without knowing it. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, not really. Um, in the sense that you knew you committed these acts, and these acts are mortal sins. Uh, and therefore you, um, you, you uh, have to know it. Now, is it possible for you to have committed a sin that was mortal but you didn't know was a mortal sin? Uh, objectively speaking, again, materially, yes. But for it to subjectively affect your conscience and your interior life, that, in other words, to be condemned for it, that has to involve some amount of consent. And therefore you have to know about it. Uh, next up is John, a first-time caller in the great state of Michigan, listening on Ave Maria Radio. John, thanks for holding. You're on with Father Milady. Thank you. Uh, my question concerns, I recently heard that a priest in the United States had his uh, priesthood basically withdrawn by the Pope for various reasons. But my understanding is that I thought when a priest was ordained, he's a priest forever in the line of Melchizedek, and it's not something that can be really taken away from him because a priest is a priest in heaven and on earth and forever. So I don't understand how the Pope can suddenly make someone not a priest. Well, to exercise your priesthood, you have to do so in the, con uh, in the uh, context of the Church. And that's why we, as you know, I have the ability to hear confessions, but I can't use that ability in a diocese unless a bishop gives me permission, what's called faculties. So the priest uh, remains a priest even in heaven, but he doesn't have the faculties to act as a priest, and he can even be withdrawn from what we call the clerical state, which means that he won't be recognized as a priest by society here on earth. So he couldn't call himself father, for example, or wear the clerical collar or habit or any of those things. Uh, but he still remains, of course, in his nature. A uh, priest is an indelible mark. It's like a baptism. Does that clear it up, John? Yeah, thank you. That, that does make sense. Thank you. All right, you're very welcome. Thanks so much for the call today. Next up is Larry. He's also in the great state of Michigan, and he is listening today on Ave Maria Radio as well. Larry, you're on with Father Milady. Hi, Father. I have a question that's been puzzling me for years that I usually get upset with priests about uh, during the Eucharist. At times, and now they're not serving the blood anymore, or some, when they do serve the blood, uh, during cold flu season, they won't serve it, uh, bringing the blame about germs. And this is a command by Jesus. you got to eat his bread, drink his blood, for you to have everlasting life. And Jesus said no germs can live in his body or blood. Jesus never said that. Uh, look, the, when the transubstantiation occurs, the miracle of transubstantiation, uh, in everything except the accidents, the uh, properties, the being changes to be Christ's body and blood. The properties still remain in their, what they do, nature-wise. I can tell you this because uh, I've had pious Catholics tell me, 
you know, sometimes when you, if you consecrate the precious blood at Mass and you do too much of it, like I was once at a parish where they had four full chalices and uh, they only had one that they used. So I had to drink all the other three chalices at once at 11 o'clock at the morning on Sunday. And I can assure you, it makes you inebriated. <laughs> the properties remain. Secondly, since it's a sacramental change, everything that's in the body is also contained in the blood and vice versa. So, the Catholic Church, as you know, for centuries, partially because of money, partially because of the fear of desecration, except for the priest, only gave communion under one form, the form of bread. In other words, the body. They did not give the cup to the laity. The cup to the laity was a privilege, a permission, that was granted in Vatican II. But from the, I'd say, at least a thousand years, the lay did not communicate from the chalice. Part of it was because of fear of contamination, but part of it was because of a fear of desecration, and also they just didn't have a lot of money in a lot of places to buy so much wine. And since uh, the only person who has to communicate under both forms is the priest, it was possible for the lady to only do so under the form of blood, of the bread, uh, of the body. So now, uh, also, because of um, gluten-free allergies and things like that, some, under some very rarefied conditions, it's possible to communicate only under the form of blood. But that's, it's got its own issues because you have to reserve it somehow if you consecrate too much. But I have been in very rare circumstances where the bishop has given permission to someone because of a, gl a gluten allergy to receive only the precious blood because that the body's contained under the blood. It's called, if you want to look it up in any old theological manual, the doctrine of concomitance. That because it's a substantial change, Everything that's in the one is also in the other. And that's why the only necessity for the lady fulfilling Christ's command to do this in memory of me is first of all to be present at the Mass where the priest receives both elements, but then to personally uh, only receive one element. Thanks, Larry. We appreciate the phone call. When you have had enough basketball by Sunday afternoon, take a break and tune in to Blessed to Play with Ron Meyer Sunday afternoon, 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is Bernadette. She is also in the great state of California, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Bernadette, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Hi, Father. Hi. Can you hear me? Oh, yes. hi. Uh, yeah, my my question involves um, my daughter who has been ill, and I've been taking her communion uh, on a daily basis. And before that, I used to go after Mass into the Adoration Chapel. And I'm just wondering, would it be, is it not right to take the host with me into the Adoration Chapel and 
do I need to go straight to my daughter? Well, um, I'm a little confused. Uh, the priest knows about this, right? Yes, absolutely. I get it um, from the priest there at the parish. Oh, okay. Well, I would have no qualms about going into the Adoration Chapel if you have the Eucharist with, uh, on your person, but you don't want to tarry too long with, before giving communion because it becomes very easy to be, uh, develop a, what would you call it, a secular attitude toward the Eucharist and not really worship it or something like that. So uh, I wouldn't think there's anything wrong with you going in the Adoration Chapel. Christ certainly isn't confused about his presence in the Eucharist you're carrying and his presence in the tabernacle. And you say, if you want to say your prayer is fine, and then go. Does that help, Bernie, that? All right. That answers it perfectly. Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate the phone call today. We could probably squeeze in one more if you pick up the phone right now and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Nancy wants to know, how was Pharaoh's free will affected if God hardened his heart? Oh, yeah, uh, the famous carding of the heart of Pharaoh. Uh, God hardens his heart in, only in the sense that he offers Pharaoh the opportunity, you remember, to change. And it's Pharaoh himself who refuses to change. In this sense, the Old Testament uses the expression of God hardening the heart but it's actually Pharaoh who hardens the heart. And he has seven chances, basically, <laughs> to change. And every time the plagues get more severe, and at first he caves in, but then he returns to his old obstinacy. And then in the final case, of course, uh, everybody's killed, the firstborn are killed, but even then, you know, he lets the people go, but then regrets it and goes after them. His heart must be really hard in there, and uh, eventually is drowned, or the army's drowned. So it's not a question that God positively hardens anyone's heart. What he does is if he doesn't find a heart disposed to receive his grace, he withdraws his grace. And I don't know if you can answer this or not, Father. If not, we'll just move on. But Ronald wants to know, what does ideological colonization mean? I have no idea. I thought that might be the case. Um, Carol asks, when St. Paul refers to other letters, which letters could he be referring to, and could they be his own? Again, I have no idea. All right, strike two. Protect the plate, Father Milady. Richard says, I'm going through RCIA, and he's wondering at what point is he ready to receive his first communion and confirmation? Well, I would say you're ready when your pastor accepts you as ready. That's his job. Now, of course, in RCIA, they tend to use the laity to do the instructing. When I was young, the priest did the instructing. It was, you had a catechism class, uh, adult inquiry. Um, and they and they could be very powerful experiences. I remember one lady; she was married to a Catholic who didn't practice uh, outside the church, but she had had no religion, no baptism, no nothing ever. And she was—I uh, met her riding a bicycle by the church at night while I was locking the door. 
and she wanted to come to convert class. So I said, okay, fine. So we had this lesson on grace, the second class, and it has a quotation in it, a beautiful quotation from St. Augustine again, that one soul in the state of grace is worth all of heaven and earth put together. And this woman in public, when we finish this lesson, she goes, Father, Father, Father! Yes, what? I want grace! <laughs> like that. <laughs> and uh, it was just beautiful. I mean, wonderful. But uh, when the priest thinks you're ready, because, you know, you, you can fool yourself into thinking you're ready, and the, the program exists to help the priest make that discernment. Hopefully, he at least is somewhat part of the process of RCIA, even if he doesn't do it all of yeah, and in the final minute we have here, Melissa says that she's been listening to Catholic Radio for a couple of years, and she's being drawn towards the Catholic faith, and she's wondering if you can tell her something that'll get her off the fence. One thing in particular that she wonders about is how to reconcile Catholic prayer with Jesus' warning against repetitious prayer. Oh, yeah. Well, the repetitious prayer bit comes in paganism, and the pagans believe that unless they mentioned every single god, their prayer wouldn't be answered. And, of course, they had lots of gods. Uh, crisis is condemning repetitious prayer as such. He's condemning it the way the pagans understood it to be. That's a beautiful answer to a beautiful question. And... Um... I think that that is going to about do it for the time that we have together with Father Brian Mullaney, our Dominican father here on EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. If you weren't able to get through today or if you still have a question that you'd like to ask on a future program, again, you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Malady, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven today, Mr. Charles Beery. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Thursday. We're back at it tomorrow with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan on EWTN's Open Line Friday. Until we get together then, God bless.